Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who, on the surface, appear to be totally ordinary. Underneath the surface, they have some pretty amazing things going on. Some people don't just attend the School of Hard Knocks. They live there. Kim Burnell DuVoe is one such person, and yet she has consistently risen above tough situations. She is the first person in her family to go to college, and what a wild ride that was. Terrified of taking out loans because of the poverty in which she grew up, Kim went to community college and then Emporia State University, all the while working her way through college. Now, that's kind of an ordinary story of sacrifice, but there's more, which I'll get to. Kim has had many crazy stories in her life, but today I want to ask her about a gigantic hurdle that she has overcome. All the while Kim was working hard and struggling financially and budgeting and providing for herself and really not getting any assistance from anybody and trying to understand college when her family had no history of college, she was coping with a health problem that took the doctors years to solve. This is a story about resilience and maybe you'll be able to pick up some things for your own life. Hey Kim. So let's go back to your senior year in high school. I know that you were thinking about college. Can you describe your life at that point, age 17 and 18? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would I would classify my, um, I would say my home life would be uh, mostly raising myself for the most part. Um, my parents traveled as part of their, uh, they were self-employed and they were, uh, were on the road a lot. So a lot of it was raising myself and also um, trying to stay savvy with providing for myself as well. Okay, well, were you working at this time? I was, yes. Yeah. So I worked, um, uh, at one point I worked two jobs. I worked a retail job um, uh, for most of high school. What was your very first paid job? Um, I remember working, I, I remember working for my parents uh, as a, I think just a cashier. Um, with their business at a young age. Do you remember how old you were? Um, I'm going to go with seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> What's the legal age of employment? <laughs> okay. Uh, and then when it comes to, I guess, working for other people, like say a McDonald's or a printing shop or anything like that, what was your first job? Um, so at least I can, I can say, uh, within high school, my, my first job, um, I think I was 14 or 15 was McDonald's. And that would have been in my first formal position uh, with a reputable employee, if you employer, if you will. Okay, and part of the reason I'm bringing up jobs is because I know that you financially helped your family out quite a bit at this time. I believe that they were traveling salespeople. Yes, yes. Um, so they traveled. I would say if I had to give a percentage, um, uh, probably eighty percent of the year. Um, they were on the road in just a few months of, of downtime. Okay, and, and I think we'll come back to that, especially when it comes to your senior year. But through all this, what was your GPA in high school? Um, I, I fluctuated around a 4.0, um, uh, sometimes a little above, and then sometimes right at. Um, I, can't, I can't recall what my final GPA was, which should be important. But yeah, <laughs> right around a 4.0. Well, nobody in the real world cares about your GPA. That's what they keep telling me once I arrived <laughs> in the real world anyway. Um, so you had this really great GPA. You were always working. And when your parents were traveling salespeople, 
roughly how many days out of the week would they be gone and where would they be? Um, they, I will say they frequented um, uh, really all over, but they, they did frequent Texas quite a bit. There were different um, shows and fairs that they would work depending on the time of year. So it really did uh, fluctuate on uh, their location would fluctuate. But uh, if I had to pinpoint a number, especially with my school week, they typically were not home seven out of seven days. Uh, May, June, July, the summer months, they would have an off season. Um, but per month, I could say they might be home a weekend here or there. Okay, so your senior year is there, and maybe it's September or October, and you can count on seeing them basically about one weekend out of the month. Yes, yeah. And, and during all this, you're 17, you are working any number of hours per week at your job, and you are maintaining a 3940, something like that in school. <laughs> yes. And clubs, activities, things like that. Uh, yes, I um, I was in National Honor Society, um, Kansas Association of Youth, and then um, my senior year I was vice president of student council, um, to name a few future business leaders of America offhand, off the top of my head. That just seems like an awful lot for a person to do and to be self-motivated to do all these things. What kept you going? I mean, why not just get a 2.0 why not just work one job? Um, why do all these clubs and activities, especially with nobody there to pull you out of bed in the morning? I think um, getting out of bed was definitely the hardest part of the day. Uh, I will say, um, for, for me, I've just kind of always been a bit of a go-getter. I, I saw my parents struggling, and I wanted to do the best I could to make them proud and for myself. And so for me, it was... Um, even in high school during that time, I really wanted to do everything I could to better my own situation and my future and to make the most of what had been given to me. Um, so it was really just trying to go out and grab everything that was in front of me. And, and, um, and also the downtime sometimes was not helpful to me. I would study, but when I would run out of homework, sometimes downtime would let my mind wander too much and I would start worrying. So oh. staying busy helped me thrive. Okay, so staying busy and staying productive basically kept you thriving is what I'm hearing. And then if you just had too much alone time or too much downtime, then maybe the loneliness just got to you. Yes, yeah, it definitely was a coping mechanism, I would say, Un unintentionally. So. I, I had a hard time when I was a senior figuring out what I wanted to do next year. Uh, and you were a senior, and doing all this stuff on your own, did you know what you wanted to do once you graduated? Um, I knew I wanted to go to college and graduate. Um, I did. Uh, I did really want to go to law school, but I was terrified of the. I would call it crippling loan debt. Um, just even just the thought of college debt in general, let alone additional schooling. Um, so I past that I hadn't I was really just college graduate college and that was that was about it okay and mind. and I just think people should understand or try to understand just how difficult this would be because nobody in your family had ever gone to college and uh, they're certainly bright and they have a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts on many different subjects but if you've never had a family member who's been to college you just you don't have that 
experience in your family where mom and dad can say, oh, well, this is easy. You have to register here and you have to fill in this paperwork there. How do you possibly even begin to negotiate the whole process? Um, that was no um, easy task, I will say that. I had a lot of um, uh, help from a school counselor and a great mentor, teacher, friend who really helped me through all of it, um, helped me with, uh, I had worked on the scholarship side of things, but they helped me with um, grants and, and federal aid options, which I hadn't even been in, tuned into yet or, or told, informed of. So um, just knowing how to ask for help on things I had no knowledge of. See, and that's, that's another thing a lot of people just have the hardest time doing is just asking for help. Yes, it definitely, um, I definitely, I think that was a struggle my parents had, knowing when to ask for help. So it was a little easier on me, um, knowing that if I got someone to explain steps A and B, I could roll C through Z. You know, I could finish that alphabet on my own. I could do the rest, but I, I needed someone to get the engines, the engine started, basically. Okay, now you mentioned a little bit of terror earlier at the idea of too much college debt. So I, I guess I'm wondering, how many scholarships did you apply for? The number is um, escaping me, but I know that it was just shy of a thousand um, scholarships that I applied for. I, I can't remember if it was in the 700 range, 792 is sticking in my head, and I can't recall if that's right. Um, you applied for 792 scholarships. I did anything that would allow me to apply, I applied for. Um, I had read that you could apply for scholarships maybe that you didn't qualify for. If no one else applied, they might just give it to any applicant. So even though I may not on paper look like I qualify, I still applied. Um, so any anything and everything that I could apply for and things I thought I might not, there's no way I could get that. Why would anyone give me this scholarship? I uh, do the dollar amount or what have you, I still applied. How long did that take? Close to 800 uh, that, scholarships. That was a, um, I, I, did, I was able to work on a lot of them the summer prior to my senior year. So I got started very, very early, but I would say about a year and a half process. Okay. All a, in all. a year and a half. Okay. So that's roughly 540 days. So definitely more than one a day. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of them would be due, um, 30 or 40 could be due at any one time. Uh, so that was the struggle was, uh, I remember one time working on, um, and this was back when you would handwrite things, um, essays. I remember working on a handful of them and then I looked up and my house was flooding and water was coming in and I stood up from the bed I was sitting on and the pile of paperwork, like tangible paperwork, slid off my lap into oh. the water that just came into the house and, um, I lost all of those and they were due the next morning and then I had all of this water to tend to. So the, the definitely it did come with its own struggles, but, um, but, but we made it through. I was able to still get some scholarships. How many, did you, how many scholarships did you get? Um, I believe I ended up landing six. <laughs> <laughs> six. Okay. And, and I did get some federal, uh, uh, grants and, um, those, those ended up being, um, I would say palpable. Uh, those were notable size grants too. 
if you had it to do over again, just kind of knowing what you know now, I mean, it's it's completely unfair because that was more than 10 years ago. Would you apply for 792 scholarships today? I would, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I still would have applied. It did keep me busy and kept me motivated. Um, I definitely could have used those hours to volunteer and help the community. Uh-huh. <laughs> but... But I do, I do think the scholarships, the six that I got, I was not expecting to get. So all in all, I would do it again. Well, how good were these scholarships? Were these, uh, how much college did they pay for? Um, one was uh, a memorial scholarship that was $500 and another one that was local. And then another one was $5,000. Um, so I did, the bulk of them were, um, another one was 1000 So they were, they were vital. Um, the $5,000 one was paid out every semester throughout the whole four years. Um, so it, it was vital to keeping me on track and motivated. Um, and then the smaller ones helped grade at the community college to get started, or I tried to save them for the final two years. Okay. Okay. So I know that you went to community college for those first two years, and then you went on to Emporia. Um, but before we get into that, while all of this was going on, while you are basically buying groceries for yourself because your parents really can't afford to send you back very much money and you're making a 4.0 GPA and you're applying for 792 scholarships. While all of this is going on, you were having physical problems. You were having, for lack of a better word, attacks. What were these attacks like? Um, it, it, initially, it's, it's very... Um it basically, I would get tunnel vision, and um, sometimes I would have a little bit of troubles um, articulating a point, so my speech, I would have speech troubles, um, and uh, sometimes my hands would be a little shaky um, or sweaty palms, but um, but I couldn't really place what was going on because it wasn't something I had gone through. Shortly after it would happen, I'd kind of forget the symptoms that I just experienced, too. So and... Um, and that was, that was even still in high school. Okay, so I guess I've known a lot of high school students. I don't really know anybody who's experienced anything like that, or at least where they described that to me. Um, when did you first decide, hey, I think I really need to see a doctor about this? Um, I believe I was 16 or 17, and um, I caught my father when he was uh, in town. So I caught him on a weekend where he was in town thought about it. I wrote down some of the symptoms a few different times that it happened collectively had a list of things and, and brought that list to him and just said, Hey, I've got some concerns. So we were able to meet with a doctor and initially they thought they thought it was panic attacks, um, anxiety attacks and, um, wrote me a script same day, <laughs> sent me on my way with some, uh, prescription medication, typical prescription for anxiety attacks. Do, do you remember what that was? That was a low dose Xanax prescription. Low-dose Xanax. Okay, so then you start yes. taking Xanax. How do you feel after you start taking Xanax? Not great. Not good. <laughs> I, I did not. I also don't really love prescriptions in general. If I, 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 I don't like feeling out of control and, and it just kind of slowed you down and, and um, that was new to me and I didn't love it because I needed to be up and ready and going um, with everything I had going on. So for me, that was uh, that was a struggle. And so I, the Xanax and I didn't last long. I could tell it wasn't helping. I had a few more of those 
attacks or, or uh, blurbs where I would check out. So I, I knew that wasn't fixing it, and I weaned off of it rather quickly. Okay. So you wean off the Xanax, but do you go back to the doctor? Do they put you on something else? Um, no, we did try to speak to the doctor. They helped me. They helped walk me through um, weaning off of the Xanax. We, we, I was on it long enough to know that it wasn't working. It wasn't that. Um, they wanted to run a plethora of tests, and I knew we couldn't afford that. And, and it wasn't something that was enough to where it was concerning or uh, and concerning enough to, to really dive into it. So for that moment, I just put a pause on the doctor side of things and passed. Okay. Well, I just kept enduring. Okay. So you just decided at this point, doctors really aren't helping. I've got too many other things to do. We're just going to let this slide. It's just not as big of a deal. Yeah. And I, I felt like the direction they were leaning me in wasn't right. So for me, I was like, this is a lose-lose. I'm just going to avoid the conflict. Okay. So and- at this point, now I realize you're just a kid at this point, you're just 17 or so, but are you just sort of hoping this whole thing is just going to go away? It's just not going to be a problem. Yes. Yeah. In my mind, I was like, I still don't really, I haven't fully evaluated what this could be. So for now I'm going to ride this out and see if it's just temporary. Um, but, uh, hope for the best kind of mentality. So what did you do? What did you feel the next time you had one of these events? Um, I would, I would definitely say the next one was, uh, um, I, it definitely was a little frightening because I was like, okay, these aren't going away. This is something I'm going to need to acknowledge at some point. I can't play, uh, uh, play dumb for too long with this. And so, um, I, I started to notice more in time over the next following months, um, more symptoms and sometimes it had to coordinate with my eating habits and so then I mentioned it again to a parent and uh, mentioned it to a a few teachers I knew who were big on nutrition and and they we all collectively everyone thought maybe this is hypoglycemia so low blood sugar issues which tends to run in my family Um, I wasn't eating super regularly you know meals and snacks so it, it seemed like a tangible and plausible option. Okay, so you tried to treat it with nutrition, basically. Yes, which easier said than done um, with, with the budget I had for a diet um, and the timeline. I was just so busy and active, it was hard to have food on on hand at all times. Right, but, um, people just grab things on the go and such. Okay, so you're, you're having these events or these attacks, and then you go up to college, and then you've got classes, you've got work, you've got family, you've got health. Uh, with everything going on, what were you the most worried about, most concerned about at the time? Um, when those attacks weren't happening, I was most concerned about school and my grades and, um, and keeping my family happy and keeping my grades, really my grades were my main focus, um, keeping that scholarship that was going to stay with me the four years, um, keeping, not missing any shifts at work so I could pay for school. So it was just kind of fueling the machine to stay on track. But when those attacks would happen, that's all I could focus on. Okay. They just completely took everything over. Yeah, it, um, it it got to the point where they would be quite debilitating. My hands would shake more. Um, my, they would get even more sweaty. My palms would. Um, and the tunnel vision just got where it was, it was pretty bad. Sometimes I'd have ringing of the ears. Um, and I still really couldn't figure it out. But it was enough to where it would drain me of energy for 
the rest of the day after having one of those. And I would be sweaty, very, very sweaty after it. So it would be hard to, if that happened in the middle of a class, I could conceal it. But um, I wouldn't remember anything from the class at all. And then I'd have to go to work for the rest of the day. So it was an arduous day if we had one of those. And then uh, how, how many credit hours do you think you were taking in a given semester while all this was going on? I usually, um, I was just enough to be, I think I had 12 or 15 credit hours. I was averaging um, four, four to five classes per semester okay. starting out. And for people, usually who five. for people who don't know, that's considered a full-time college semester. And then how many hours a week do you think you were working? Um, I worked uh, six days a week. I was then a bank teller, um, so I had to, had to be there early. Um, I, I would go to classes early in the morning, and then I would work um, like 1 to 6 p.m. Uh, during the week, and then I had to work early on Saturdays until uh, noon or 1. Okay, so maybe about five hours a day, seven days a week. That actually comes to about 35 hours a week, so that's very close to full-time employee and full-time students, so you're balancing all those, and you're having these panic attacks. Now, I kind of want to go in the opposite direction because um, I don't want people to think you're just neglecting your health completely during this time. Uh, did you feel good most of the time? Yes. Yeah, when those weren't happening, um, I, I, I felt pretty good. I... Uh, Again, was focusing on nutrition, trying to eat right, trying to make sure that I was getting. I had every day I would go to classes in the morning. Um, I would start with the light snack as breakfast, and I had um, you name it in my back backpack ready to go. Um, snacks every two hours because I thought I had low blood sugar issues, so I had to keep my sugar where it needed to be. I had water, everything I could ever need throughout the whole day, ready to go with me. I mean, and I felt, really I felt decent. Sorry. So oh, and I felt decent during that time. Well, it just seems to me like you're putting a lot of thought in this. But then one day, everything just changed. And yes. I was just kind of hoping you could just tell the story right now of the one day when everything just got flipped. Um, I remember being um, 19, and I was at work. Um, so I had finished that morning's classes. I don't remember if the day was stressful um, I don't remember if the classes or anything at work was overly stressful, but I just remember um, I was actively at my at my job um, doing teller duties, bank teller uh, duties, and out of nowhere, really the last thing I remember um, would be, uh, and really the only memory of that day that I have is, is knowing that I'd gone to class, and then um, I vaguely remember um, my hands being sweaty. I remember telling my coworker, I think my blood sugar is crashing. Um, I should go eat something. And then I don't remember anything other than waking up. Um, and it basically, I kept um, trying to scratch at my face a little bit, my chin, because it felt like something was on my chin, something sticky or something, just anything. Um, and I was having troubles comprehending what was going on. And I felt like I was floating. And I learned later to kind of fill you in on some of this. I was, um, I was coming to, I had had a seizure at work, um, and I was on a stretcher. And so when I was floating, I was actually being carted off into an ambulance. Um, what I felt on my face was dried blood. I, I bit my tongue pretty terribly. And so, um, I was just starting to get the feeling back in my body, um, from all of that. 
So a, a grand mal seizure at work is basically what ended up happening. And kind of what I'm hearing is it wiped out a huge chunk of your memory from the entire day. And suddenly you are floating, you're on a stretcher and your face is kind of bloodstained because you've bitten your tongue. And so then what happens? Where do they take you? What, what did the people um, there say? They, um, they, they rushed me to the hospital. I, I have only one memory from the hospital. I know that I had one coworker go there and I had a friend show up, um, that they called and, uh, and again, I didn't really have any immediate family for them to call. So, um, they, they went to the hospital and I couldn't, I was kind of in and out. I don't really recall much. I remember the fella who did my cat scan had a mohawk and, <laughs> um, and that was about all I remembered, um, from that day. And even still, that's all I remember. Um, but they later, I, I learned that my coworkers said that I'd actually, I had woken up probably 20 minutes prior to, um, my first memory that I now have, um, I had been awake and they were trying to talk to me and I, I was, uh, coming to. So, um, they had no idea what caused it. They just said I'd fallen straight back, hit my head. Um, I learned later there was no padding under the carpet. So it was a concrete floor. Uh, and I woke up with a knot, the size, almost the size of a, a fist um, or baseball on the back of my head on one side. And, uh, and so they did a CAT scan, any of the typical scans MRI just to make sure that uh, I didn't have any kind of masses on the brain or injury related to that head trauma. And I was diagnosed with a concussion for sure. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but then they sent me home the same day. So your head hit the counter, then your head hits the concrete floor, and yes, you wake yeah. up in the hospital. Uh, they know you have a concussion, but what did they say in terms of, hey, what caused this? Uh, they, I got asked a lot if I'd ever, if in the last few days, if I had any kind of head trauma, if I'd been in a car accident or hit with anything in the head, if I had a history of um, seizures in my family. And uh, and I, uh, they're asking me this, and I couldn't really speak. <laughs> I My tongue was swollen. My memory was shot. Uh, but I was quite sure I didn't have a history of it. Um, so what I could clarify to them and state I did, but I, I just didn't have any history of that. So with seizures, they just kind of send you on your way and hope you never have another one. And that's what they did that day. Just kind of like hope and pray and wish for the best, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. And then, hey, watch out for excessive drowsiness with this concussion. So it was more like they treated the concussion that day um, and then just kind of said to be cautious the next few days. Were you terrified? I, you know, I was pretty mortified. I, I, I felt completely out of control which again isn't something I like I don't know too many who do um and and I had uh you know I had work the next day I had class the next day so I I'm just terrified um of, of missing both and um the injuries I've sustained they cleared you for driving no um they, they said technically technically my license wasn't revoked anything of that nature they just said hey we don't recommend driving for the weekend through the weekend so they gave me um, about four days. Um, you don't drive for the next four days. Make sure you, you know, get over this concussion, basically. It, it was really all about the concussion to them. At okay. That okay. Because with the seizure, they just didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And so it was all about the concussion. And and did they yeah. 
they just you had to go back to class and you had to go back to work. Yes, and and after a seizure, you're so uh, physically drained, um, you don't even realize you have so much adrenaline that day that you don't realize you were in pain until the next day rolls around. So you leave the hospital and you're like, okay, this is my new norm today. And I've got this knot in my head, my tongue's swollen. That's the worst of it, right? And then you wake up the next day and uh, every muscle that you didn't know existed in your body hurts. So muscles you had no, no clue could even hurt hurts because when you convulse, everything just locks in place and shudders essentially. And so, um, the next few days were very rough. I, th I think I needed to not work for three or four days and I, I took two off. Okay. So you did actually take a few days off. Yes. I, it took me about, um, three hours after leaving the hospital to realize that my, my, um, speech was not, I, I my, uh, word comprehension wasn't quite where it should be. Mm. Um, and I, I just thought it was related to the concussion. Um, so, so for me, I knew I needed to take a couple days, um, and I, I didn't have anyone to take me to, to class. So I just I thought, you know, I'm not really comprehending things, so I, I'll take a couple days off. Okay, so the part of this that's kind of mind blowing to me is, uh, so I, I when I taught high school, and a kid gets a concussion, they might be out for two three weeks, and then when they come back, then we are supposed to strip down their workload and give them half as much. Uh, you know, a person might not get cleared for a concussion for, I don't know, four to eight weeks. And here, four days later, you're basically trying to go back to school and go back to work and just cope with things. Uh, was there part of you that just wanted to say, hey, look, I just give up. Uh, somebody else just take care of me. I, I just want to have somebody else handle my life. The, um, at least at that time, I kind of took it as more fire under my feet. Um, but, but I had a second seizure 10 days later. Um, and that was what I would say was defeating. That's what really brought me down. That resulted in another visit to the ER. I had the same, um, I think CAT scan technician with the Mohawk. <laughs> I remember the only memory from the hospital really that time either. Um, that I that I could recall. I know that my parents were in town that time, um, so they were called and, and they they came to the hospital and I couldn't really talk. Um, and that's when I realized I might be in trouble because my speech was really, really bad. Um, I didn't bite my tongue as bad, um, but I I had done a number on my brain. So at this point, are the doctors trying to figure out what's causing these seizures? Um, still no, not really. They, they basically again asked, have you had any head trauma recently? Are you sure you haven't? Do you have any family history? Luckily, my family was there and, and they were like, no, we, we don't, um, to, to reiterate. And then um, and then from there, they they just basically said, well, 90% of seizures go undiagnosed as to the, the origin or the cause. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay the night in the hospital in case you have another one. Um, and we're going to start you on this uh, the seizure medication right away. So within the IV, they started me on the medication. Um, it made me extremely drowsy, really slowed my brain down would be how I describe it. And it, it took, um, years to get used to. So, but still no explanation at all as to what caused the seizures in okay. any way. Okay. So then how long were you on this medication then? And then when did you finally feel like, Hey, I've gotten to the 
bottom of what this this problem really is i think that it took um i was on the, i was on the medication uh that particular medication i was on it for about a decade um and then i transitioned to another medication um that i'm i'm still presently on um and i would say in the last um it took about i would four years so just after my college graduation where i was able to say i i confidently can Firm, this was due to lack of sleep and too much stress. Um, thinking I had it all under control, but I really didn't. Uh, so it, it took me a while. I, I had my assumptions, though, um, within about a year. So I was able to kind of try tinkering with that and seeing if, hey, if I sleep more and if I deal with stress more directly, is that helping? And, and it was, or so I felt. Okay. Did, did you ever get to the bottom? I mean, did, does this condition have a name? Um, actually, just so um, this would be 12 years after my first seizure. Okay. Um, I, throughout that 12-year period, I still had a few what they call petite mall seizures. So okay. um, I, I would get tunnel vision and check out. My speech would go a little bit, just like those little attacks I was having um, before the big seizure. Um and when I switched medications, those stopped. But but 12 years later, so very recently, um, I was able to finally get an EEG, which basically has you go in sleep deprived, and they just view your brain activity, your brain waves, um, and they they flash lights. They do a few different things just to see how your brain reacts. And from that, I was formally diagnosed with epilepsy. So I have um, slowness of the brain in my left temporal lobe. Okay, so epilepsy. And I don't know a whole lot about epilepsy, but I know the word, which just makes me think this is a common thing, common enough. Why, why do you think it took so long for doctors to figure out what this is? Um, initially, they just kept telling me, you know, it's a seizure disorder. So for whatever reason, you had a handful of, you had a, a few seizures, uh, and you had a few more of these little partial seizures, these attacks, um, and the medicine seems to be working, so we're just going to call it a seizure disorder, and mm. hey, at least the medicine's working. Um, okay. And I think uh, that's kind of where they left, they really did leave things. Because they were kind of trapped, I suppose, in the paradigm that 90% of all seizures are just not solvable. So, you know, gosh, you're having these seizures. You're probably like 90% of the other people where we just have not figured this out. We're doing the best that we can. We've, we've given you a, a therapeutic. You know, you have some, some drugs that you can take, and they seem to be helping. So we're just doing the best that we can, and, and there is some help. Is, is that kind of accurate in terms of their motive? Yes, they, they were they were just happy to see since I'd had two grand mal seizures close together a year later I'd had another one um, and I hadn't slept well that night prior so um, they they were just happy to see the medication work and and that's that third one's what allowed me to go oh maybe it's sleep related and stress related um, and when I pieced the puzzle together with their health the professionals health and my own observations you know we were able to figure out okay I'm not having any more. Um, so this medication comboed with sleep is working. And then we just kind of accepted it, basically, as did the doctors. Once they put a name on it, and then that allowed them, I suppose, to refine the treatment, did you just feel just a gigantic amount of relief? I mean, maybe on one 
level bad. Oh no, I have epilepsy. But maybe on a different level, well, at least now I know what my situation is. How, how did you feel once you heard epilepsy? I think um, initially my first sigh of relief came from um, getting the CAT scan back, the, the initial scans after the second seizure specifically, and knowing I didn't have some kind of um, uh, bleeding of the brain or some cancer or tumor or lumps, anything like that. Um, that was a, a minimal sigh of relief. And then I will say seizure disorder was kind of a um, empty diagnosis. It wasn't heartfelt or fulfilling. So at least having them say, hey, you do have abnormal brain activity in a portion of your brain, then I can look it up and see what that portion of the brain does and what it controls. And it was everything that I was experiencing. It, it was the exact pinpoint on the map as to you know the location of, of really turmoil in this case. So it was a huge sigh of relief just to have them say, yes, here you go. You know, something that just has always kind of amazed me about you is like, I've known that you've had these problems, but it just seems like you've enjoyed life so much. And uh, it just doesn't seem like uh, you've been held back uh, extensively by health problems. Uh, you know, you've advanced in your career, you've traveled all over the place, you happily got married, uh, you have got interesting hobbies and activities, you create beautiful things in your spare time. Uh, it just seems like uh, this has not really held you back. Is there? Is it holding you back in some way that I don't know? Um, really, I think my biggest struggle is sometimes, um, I would say, keeping friendships uh, with folks who... Um, it, it sometimes is a struggle, but you start to learn, I think, with maturity and time, um, the folks who don't... Because I am an open book about the condition. I want, if anyone knows someone who's got it, or even just seizure disorder, I want to be a resource to them. So I do make myself an open book. I, in time, decided that was something I wanted to share. Um, so my friends all know about it, and my friends' friends know about it, and I think it's important um, for them and me. They should know, hey, these are some triggers of mine. That way I never get in a situation where I'm out too late, and I'm, not, I'm, getting, I'm missing sleep. Um, if, if a conversation or something's stressing me out, you know, I'll step away from it and folks can explain why. So I, I, um, I think really that's the hardest part is sometimes um, the condition is kind of an invisible, they call it a disability. I, I don't like to call it my version of it, um, but sometimes folks do not realize that. And um, But I really try to not let it slow me down. I really try to not miss work because of it. I think I've taken one personal day in 12 years oh my because of it, and that was, that was this, um, this past year, I just hadn't slept enough and said, you know what, I, I better take a personal day because I'm, I'm a little too tired um, and I've got the time off. So finally doing that for myself. That's really amazing. I think I went the first seven years of my work life from 22 to 29 without ever taking a day off. And here you've made it 12. I just have to say, I'm, I'm, you got me beat. I'm deeply impressed. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Well, I, I feel like I've asked you uh, how the doctors are treating things, and you're on maybe a medication or two. Uh, then there's, I guess, also maybe the more holistic side of things, and you've sort of alluded to that. Could you say just a little bit more maybe about things along the lines of nutrition, exercise, water, sleep, friendships, stress levels? Can, can you just say specifically how do you approach this? Uh, yeah, so I, I will start off with saying I a weakness of mine. I am um, 
I would say from birth an overanalyzer, hyper observer. So I notice the little things. Um, it has made the condition itself makes me more so that way because I do want to know the who, what, when, where before I commit to something, before I'll RSVP to something. I have to make sure that I'm going to be in a good environment um, and uh, get home properly. I don't like to carpool with others if I if I don't know all the specifics. Um, so with that said, um, I like to control really making sure I have a structure to anything I do. But with that, um, just on the daily, I do I do try to um, water is my best friend. The number one thing I can do is start the day off with um, water and just nonstop as much water as I can have. Um, I really, I don't like to drink soda. I, I like to kind of keep things clean. So um, for the most part, that's my number one thing. I was, um, ironically, because of the blood sugar, what we thought was a blood sugar issue, I was actually on what's now called the keto diet when I started having seizures. And so many folks mentioned, have you tried the keto diet? Some folks try that for epilepsy. And um, I was like, yes, I, I was on it when I started having the seizures. Um, so it's, it was uh, not the most helpful because I had I, I didn't have a ton of weight to lose, um, but I'd lost a few pounds. And then the medicine, when they put me on it, it caused weight loss. So on my 21st birthday, I remember I have just a couple photos from that day. Um, I couldn't drink, not that I would have been a drinker, but um, I did a scavenger hunt that day. And I, I just remember the dress that I had on, my collarbone was so bony. Um, looking back, I just deleted all the other photos that I had from that day. Cause I, I don't, um, I was too frail. I didn't like it. So my goal now with my diet is to make sure I'm enjoying food. I'm getting, I'm get. I have a sweet tooth. So I, I would like to get some of that, but I do like to get as many steps in a day as I can. I like to go on walks, sometimes jogging, um, periodic run and, um, and, and really just hydrate, hydrate and making sure I'm getting plenty of salad in the mix too. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like you're, you're pretty intentional, pretty comprehensive, just in terms of all these things, nutrition, exercise, sleep, water, and then just your stress level, uh, not wanting the carpool and uh, just any number of other things where if you're going to go to an event, you really sort of want to understand the contours of the whole thing before you go. Uh, did we leave anything out in terms of that kind of intentionality? I think really just, um, uh, I think that's really everything. And, and just knowing in the last few years, I've learned maybe when friendships, um, stress levels, uh, with friendships are things sometimes become toxic. I was able to kind of, sometimes I have to put a distance between friendships, uh, to keep that stress level where it needs to be. But besides that, yeah, we covered. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's a stress hormone called cortisol and a little bit of it is good. Like when people climb mountains and too much of it is bad and will kill you. So it just sounds like you're paying attention to that as well. So fast forwarding to today, age 31, how do you feel about life? Um, right now I'm, I'm, I, it, I will say this condition is always surprising. I, I just met with my neurologist a few days ago and, um, he wants to try to get me off the medication. So you never know what they're going to throw at you. Um, we did a, uh, uh, an EEG that, uh, just a couple years ago, that was the first EEG they ever did. Um, after 12 years of having a seizure disorder, that's what diagnosed me with epilepsy. And so we're going to schedule another one here and, and see whether that's 
a good idea or not. So <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> does that seem crazy to you after being on medications for 12 years? Or does that just seem like, hey, maybe I'm cured? You know, um, two years ago when we did the first EEG, I was all about it. I really wanted to get off the medication. I had worked up, I'd taken about a year to amp myself up, I would say, at the thought of being off the medication. And then um, here we are two years later, and I'm like, is this a horrible decision? I'm really overanalyzing it, um, and I'm worried again. So it might, we'll see um, if I can control the sleep and the stress, uh, what life throws at me, then um I know the neurologist is very optimistic that I wouldn't be dependent on the medication just based on what he saw on the test two years ago. So who knows? So <laughs> it is nerve wracking. So if you went off of it and if it didn't work, would you just hop right back on it? Yes. Um, we would, uh, some, some folks will hop right back on it and sometimes it doesn't work anymore and they have to do two medication, a bit of a cocktail. Um, so that is, my worst fear um, because the medications that I've been on worked alone. Um, I do fear that getting off of it will be uh, an unforeseeable and at least irrevocable uh, choice. So yeah, it is, it's nerve wracking. Yeah. Hope, hopefully, hopefully it will all work out fine. And I'll just, I'll just wish and hope and pray that it does. Um, well, I just want to say congratulations just in life because you made it. You made it through college when nobody else in your family did. Uh, you've been a hard worker your whole life, and you work in the field of insurance. And I just want to pause on that for just a little bit because I, I think you've taken a very, very different approach to it. But I'm, I'm really trying to get at a larger thing is that I feel like you've always had a heart for other people. I know that you've done a lot of volunteer work, and we haven't talked about that very much. And uh, now you're in insurance, and insurance is just a field that gets slammed an awful lot. I mean, people just really hate insurance companies. I think it's maybe like working for the government or being a lawyer. It's just one of those things where, where there's good people in all of those things, but at the same token, sometimes it has a really bad reputation. So I, later I want to ask you, why insurance? Um, but I, I know you have a tagline that goes with insurance. What's your tagline? Um, uh, I do know limit your risk. Um, bounce back when calamity strikes. Is that what you were thinking? Uh, maybe, maybe. No, that sounds very practical. Uh, I was thinking maybe insurance with a heart. Oh, yes. Insurance with a Yes. Mm-hmm. To me, um, yeah, insurance, I think, sales folk, I, I think salespeople are expected to... Um, and insurance is sales, so so folks do expect you to um, to quote them and then and have a hard line on. Okay, well this is a product and you should do this, and here's why. Um, and instead, I like to kind of 180 that, and and um, I really like to spin it and let people know here's here's all the information, here's all the facts, um, here's what you currently have. We're comparing it to what I have here in front of you. Um, do with that what you will. And then the number one thing is um, when they have a claim that we're there for them. Um, as an insurance broker, I'm advocating for them. So I'm, I'm able to get with the claims adjuster if we don't like what, what they're hearing about the claim payout um, and, and advocate for them. It's really all about the service that I'm doing, not the sales. So it is, it's a little backwards from what they many employers and insurance agencies 
expect of their employees. But I, I happen to mesh with a great company. Well, and you have just a slightly different business model, I think, than maybe some insurance companies do, where you essentially help clients search through 10, 20, 30 insurance companies, if need be, to find the absolute best fit for them. Yes, and I kind of like that um, because I'm able, being a broker and having access to multiple carriers, I'm able to keep my brain challenged, which helps the condition of epilepsy. So it really all circles back to staying challenged, um, keeping my brain um, constantly going and uh, moving a mile a minute, you know, and, and also really having a heart for our clients and, and having their best intentions in mind, growing with them as they as their needs change. Okay, so it's it's a win for them because you're shopping around to 30 companies and getting the best deal for them, but it's a win for you because it just keeps you active and engaged and things along those lines. Um, Kim, I would like you to maybe give people just a little bit of advice. Suppose a younger person came to you and she is 18 and she's going off to college and maybe like you, she's been just severely tested in multiple dimensions of life. Uh, maybe she's had health problems, money problems, family problems, work problems, you name it. Let's just say that she's overcome more than the average person and she's tired. She just wants to just relax and just not think about things and not be ambitious. What would be your advice? How, how would you help a person like this who, I guess they've got the angel on one shoulder and just the lazy person on the other shoulder? I definitely, um, I mean, we can all relate, I think, to that at some day or another in our lives. Um, to me, I can see where they're coming from. Um, we all have those ups and downs. I definitely would at least want to kind of chomp at the bit a little topic by topic and, and just kind of help explain why um, the only way, really the only route to take is just, just to keep one foot in front of the other. Um, a lot of it is what I've gone through, just kind of give them a comparison of what I've risen above. Um, sometimes you just have to look a foot in front of you and just keep walking. Um, so when I had speech troubles, whatever it may be, I had to relearn how to form sentences. Sometimes I still use the wrong word. I'll use a word that sounds like the word I'm trying to use. It starts with the same consonant as the word I'm trying to think of. Um, so it, it, it helps, I think, having someone um, relatable and someone who's gone, been in the trenches, so to speak, um, and really kind of dive in on the family front, the money trouble front, um, health problems, giving them resources. I had a you know, great counselor and teacher, um, doctor, um, for many years, who I could confide in and share the details with. It's all about surrounding yourself with the right people and knowing how to maybe distance yourself from the wrong people. Um, so the folks that aren't letting you get enough sleep or whatever it may be that your triggers are. But at first and foremost, identifying what triggers those health problems um, and just kind of building your foundation around that. You said so many good things in there. And just ran in order, I heard establish good relationships with people, have some really, really solid mentors, which would imply being actually willing to listen to the mentors and follow up with the mentors, yes. uh, maybe identifying some of your own triggers and then avoiding some of those triggers. 
And whatever the situation you're in, if you can't pronounce words anymore because of the health crisis, well, then you're in the position where you have to practice words. So don't give up. Just keep just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, as they say. Yes. <laughs> so. And I think the easiest part, um, the number one piece of advice, um, I had a sense of humor through all of this. I, would, I wouldn't be able to think of a word, and I would just laugh and say, I should let you know I have epilepsy, and I'm having a little bit of a brain pause moment here. So we're going to come back to the word I can't think of, and here's what I'm trying to tell you. And I would just elaborate more until, or I would get over the word that I couldn't, the obstacle in front of me, that my brain just wasn't, you know, coming up with a word. I'd just move on from it. Um, so, well, I, yes, I think, I think that's vital. I think that's good. I have read in multiple places that comedians live a very, very, very long time. They tend to live in their late 80s, 90s, 100. Of course, people with zero sense of humor say, well, who would want to? So there is that. Um, (laughs) So, Kim, I have two more questions. What are your plans for the future? Um, At least for now, I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of playing things by ear. I definitely wanted to look into um, maybe going back to school or um, doing something else to challenge myself um, educationally or academically. I love reading, but I thought maybe more. Um, But now that's kind of a back burner um, for many reasons, economically, um, as well as uh, who knows how this EEG will go and and what hurdles that'll throw at us. Um, So in the short term, I, I don't have a great explanation, but, but it's almost better that way. It's almost best for me, um, to kind of just approach life with a short term view. Um, so I, I do, my husband and I, um, kind of just take it day by day and and pace ourselves. Um, just trying to pretend that life is a marathon and, and, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a sprint. So we just take it slowly and, and, and go from there. So very abstract answer. No, that's that's quite all right. Um, so then my very last question is this. Um, suppose you are 100 years old. We're just going to fast forward to the end of the century. And uh, you are 100 years old, sitting on the front porch of your house. Your husband is holding your hand. And you are surrounded by people who love you. And people say, Kim, what was good about your life? What are you the most satisfied with? What do you say? I think for me, just being a good person, living by the golden rule, ethics is huge. Um, and, and knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing right, um, that to me is everything. Um, and, and just really being that good person, but diligence too. So knowing when to advocate for many years, I thought advocating for myself or being stern with someone who wasn't right for me as a friend or whatever it may be, um, was being mean or rude, um, a bad person. And, and really, I realized now that was just me um, setting boundaries for my own life myself. So for me, it's, um, it's very much making sure that I've built the foundation right now so that the structure is sound, you know, the, the, life that we have in this home, so to speak, um, that we've built is is structurally sound and right and just. Um, So it really is all about being a good person and um, I think spreading that, allowing that to flourish, helping people with similar conditions. 
Thank you. That was beautifully said, Kim. And thank you so much just for taking the time to chat with me about this pivotal event, this ongoing event in your life. Oh, my pleasure. Yes. And stay tuned. I'm happy to help. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. Just hearing it again on my part makes me realize just how lucky I am to know people like Kim Burnell DuVoe. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. Until Thursday.